this podcast deals with true crime, I will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Sandy, you've probably been here as long as anybody keeping this vigil, and it now looks that it it will come to an end, that they will move the girls and Charlie. What, what do you girls intend to do? Uh, we'll be here until it gets out. After this trial, there, there'll be another trial, so they won't move them for quite some time. But we'll be here until he's out, and he is coming out. What about the girls? What do you feel about the girls? I love them, and I'm with them wherever they go in spirit, and they'll also be coming out. Um, Sadie won't be transferred for quite some time because there's that Hinman Shea trial coming up. <coughs> but, um... But if they do move them to some other place, will you follow? Uh, Charlie will be coming out soon, and they won't be moving him for, for some time. Working separately from the Tate team, the LaBianca team checked with the sheriff's office in mid-October about possible similar crimes. They learned of the Hinman case. They also learned that the Hinman detectives had spoken with Beausoleil's girlfriend, Kitty Lotzinger. She had been arrested a few days earlier with the members of the Manson family. The arrests for car theft had taken place at the Desert Ranch, to which the family had moved and where, unknown to authorities, its members had been searching Death Valley for a hole in the ground, access to the bottomless pit. A joint force of National Park Service Rangers and officers from the California Highway Patrol and the Inyo County Sheriff's Office, federal, state, and county personnel had raided both the Myers Ranch and the Barker Ranch after following clues unwittingly left when family members burned an earth mover owned by a Death Valley National Monument. The raiders had found stolen dune buggies and other vehicles and had arrested two dozen people, including Manson. A highway patrol officer found Manson hiding in a cabinet beneath Barker's bathroom sink. The officers had no idea that the people they were arresting were involved with the murders. Following up leads a month after they had spoken with Lutzinger, LaBianca detectives contacted members of a motorcycle gang. Manson tried to enlist as bodyguards while the family was at Spawn Ranch. 
While the gang members were providing information that suggested a link between Manson and the murders, a dormitory mate of Susan Atkins informed LAPD of the family's involvement in the crimes. Atkins was booked for the Hinman murder after she told sheriff's detectives that she had been involved in it. Transferred to Sybil Brand Institute, a detention center in Monterey Park, California, she had begun talking to bunkmates Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, to whom she gave accounts of the events in which she had been involved. On December 1, 1969, acting on the information from these sources, LAPD announced warrants for the arrest of Watson, Kremwinkle, and Kasabian in the Tate case. The suspect's involvement in the LaBianca murders was noted. Manson and Atkins, already in custody, were not mentioned. The connection between the LaBianca case and Van Houten, who was also among those arrested near Death Valley, had not yet been recognized. Watson and Kremwinkle were already under arrest with authorities in McKinley, Texas and Mobile, Alabama, having picked them up on notice from LAPD. Informed that a warrant was out for her arrest, Kasabian voluntarily surrendered to authorities in Concord, New Hampshire on December 2nd. Before long, physical evidence such as Kremwinkle and Watson's fingerprints, which had been collected by LAPD at Cielo Drive, were augmented by evidence recovered by the public. On September 1, 1969, the distinctive 22 caliber high-standard Buntline Special Revolver Watson had used on Parent, Sebring, and Frykowski had been found and given to the police by Stephen Weiss, a 10-year-old who lived near the Tate residence. In mid-December, when the Los Angeles Times published a crime account based on the information Susan Atkins had given her attorney, Weiss's father made several phone calls, which finally prompted LAPD to locate the gun in its evidence file and connect it with the murders via ballistic tests. Acting on the same newspaper account, a local ABC television crew quickly located and recovered the bloody clothing discarded by the Tate killers. The knives discarded en route from the Tate residence were never recovered, despite a search by some of the same crewmen and, months later, by the LAPD. A knife found behind the cushion of a chair in the Tate living room was apparently that of Susan Atkins, who had lost the knife in the course of the attack. The trial began June 15, 1970, with the prosecutor's main witness, Kasabian, who along with Manson, Atkins, and Kremwinkle had been charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. Since Kasabian, by all accounts, had not participated in the killings, she was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony that detailed the nights of the crimes. Originally, a deal had been made with Atkins in which the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty against her in exchange for her grand jury testimony on which the indictments were secured. Once Atkins repudiated that testimony, the deal was withdrawn. Because Van Houten had participated only in the LaBianca killings, she was charged with two counts of murder and one of conspiracy. 
Originally, Judge William Keene had reluctantly granted Manson permission to act as his own attorney. Because of Manson's conduct, including violations of a gag order and submission of outlandish and nonsensical pre-trial motions, the permission was withdrawn before the trial's start. Manson filed an affidavit of prejudice against Keene, who was replaced by Judge Charles H. Older. On Friday, July 24th, the first day of testimony, Manson appeared in court with an X carved into his forehead. He issued a statement that he was, quote, considered inadequate and incompetent to speak or defend himself and had X'd himself from the establishment's world, unquote. Over the following weekend, the female defendants duplicated the mark on their own foreheads, as did most family members within a day or so. Years later, Manson carved the X into a swastika. The prosecution argued the trigger of Helter Skelter was Manson's main motive. The crime scene's bloody white album references, Pig, Rise, and Helter Skelter, were correlated with testimony about Manson's predictions that the murderers blacks would commit at the outset of Helter Skelter would involve writing of pigs on walls in victims' blood. Testimony that Manson had said now is the time for Helter Skelter was supplemented with Kasabian's testimony that on the night of the LaBianca murders, Manson considered discarding Rosemary LaBianca's wallet in the streets of a black neighborhood. Having obtained the wallet in the LaBianca house, he, quote, wanted a black person to pick it up and use the credit cards so that the people, the establishment, would think that it was some sort of an organized group that killed these people, unquote. On his direction, Kasabian had hidden it in a woman's restroom of a service station near a black area. Quote, I want to show Blackie how to do it, unquote, Manson had said, as the family members drove away after leaving the LaBianca house. During the trial, family members loitered near the entrances and corridors of the courthouse. To keep them out of the courtroom proper, the prosecution subpoenaed them as prospective witnesses who would not be able to enter while the others were testifying. When the group established itself in a vigil on the sidewalk, some members wore sheathed hunting knives that, although in plain view, were carried legally. Each of them also was identifiable by the X on his or her forehead. How long have you been working on it? About four years. It's for Charlie. And he will wear it, huh? Yeah, he'll wear it. Very confident, right? Sure, well, we know, we know. Is that part of the, uh, part of your ideal that you do know, you, you're positive? Oh, wow, uh, we're completely positive. The jails are coming open, no question. All the jails really? and the penitentiaries are going to be open, very sure. I notice that you all sit in the same attitude with your hands the same way. Is it significant? What does it mean? Uh, we're on our knees. We're giving up. You're giving up? Yeah. Not on Charlie and the girls, though. No, we're with them. In other words, uh, we give up the system. Uh, we're down. We, we uh, give it to whoever wants to take it. We vex ourselves out of the system, and, and we give it all up. Some family members attempted to dissuade witnesses from testifying. Prosecution witness Paul Watkins and Juan Flynn were both threatened. Watkins was badly burned in a suspicious fire in his van. Former family member Barbara Hoyt, who had overheard Susan Atkins describing the tape murders to a family member, Ruth Ann Morehouse, 
agreed to accompany the latter to Hawaii. There, Morehouse allegedly gave her a hamburger spiked with several doses of LSD. Found sprawled on a Honolulu curb in a drugged semi-stupor, Hoyt was taken to the hospital, where she did her best to identify herself as a witness to the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. Before the incident, Hoyt had been a reluctant witness. After the attempt to silence her, her reticence disappeared. August 4th, despite precautions taken by the court, Manson flashed the jury a Los Angeles Times front page whose headline was, quote, Manson guilty, Nixon declares, unquote. This was a reference to the statement made the previous day when U.S. President Richard Nixon had declared what he saw as the media's glamorization of Manson. The jurors contended that the headline had not influenced them. The next day, the female defendants stood up and said in unison that in light of Nixon's remarks, there was no point in going on with the trial. On October 5th, Manson was denied the court's permission to question a prosecution's witness, whom defense attorneys had declined to cross-examine. Leaping over the defense table, Manson attempted to attack the judge, wrestled to the ground by bailiffs, he was removed from the courtroom with the female defendants, who had subsequently risen and began chanting in Latin. Thereafter, Older allegedly began wearing a revolver under his robes. On November 16th, the prosecution rested its case. Three days later, after arguing standard dismissal motions, the defense stunned the court by resting as well, without calling a single witness. Shouting their disapproval, Atkins, Kremwinkle, and Van Houten demanded their right to testify. In chambers, the women's lawyers told the judge their clients wanted to testify, they had planned and committed the crimes, and that Manson had not been involved. By resting their case, the defense lawyers had tried to stop this. Van Houten's attorney, Ronald Hughes, vehemently stated that he would not, quote, push a client out the window, unquote. In the prosecutor's view, it was Manson who was advising these women to testify in this way as a means of saving himself. Speaking about the trial in 1987 documentary, Kremwinkle said, quote, the entire proceedings were scripted by Charlie, unquote. The next day, Manson testified, lest Manson's address violate the California Supreme Court's decision in People v. Aranda by making statements implicating his co-defendants, the jury was removed from the courtroom. 
Speaking for more than an hour, Manson said, among other things, that, quote, the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment. He said, why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. To be honest with you, Manson also stated, I don't ever recall saying get a knife and change of clothes and go and do what Tex says, unquote. I understand that there are some people that are trying to rescue you from time to time. Oh, the, the Jesus people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Jesus people have, uh, in other words, people see that this is the end, that uh, a revolution's coming or a lot of big changes are coming. And uh, the Jesus people are, are slipping into the minds of all the people that are confused and don't know where to go. Do you feel that the end is in sight and a change is coming also? Big, big, big changes are coming yeah. real soon. You're kind of thinking the same way they are then, aren't you? Well, uh, you know, everyone you, you meet talks about it. Uh-huh. You can, even the, even the lady, little old ladies who sit on the corner who have had their welfare checks taken away, and the little old man and all those people, they're all, they all come on this corner every day of the week yelling about revolution and that, you know, about the people who are in power better give it up. You know, Nixon better give it up, because if he doesn't, the whole thing's going to be destroyed. Do you feel that you see a limited segment of life as you sit here, that most of the Everything. people that come by here are in trouble? No, you know what, we, on this corner we mostly see the people who have been down, you know, for all their lives, because these are the people who are going to court, you know, the black people, the Chicanos, these are the people who spend most of their lives in these courts with their sons going to, you know, jail, and their daughters going to jail. And we see every, every kind of way of life there is. As the body of the trial concluded, and with the closing arguments impending, defense attorney Hughes disappeared during the weekend trip. When Maxwell Keith was appointed to represent Van Houten in Hughes' absence, a delay of more than two weeks was required to permit Keith to familiarize himself with the voluminous trial transcripts. No sooner had the trial resumed, just before Christmas, then the disruptions of the prosecution's closing arguments by the defendants led Older to ban the four defendants from the courtroom for the remainder of the guilt phase. This may have occurred because the defendants were acting in collusion with each other and were simply putting on a performance, which Older said was becoming obvious. On January 25, 1971, the jury returned guilty verdicts against the four defendants on each of the 27 separate counts against them. Not far into the trial's penalty phase, the jurors saw at last the defense that Manson, in the prosecution's views, had planned to present. Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten testified the murders had been conceived as a, quote, copycat version of the Hinman murder, for which Atkins now took credit. The killings, they said, were intended to draw suspicion away from Bobby Beausoleil by resembling the crime for which he had been jailed. The plan had supposedly been the work and carried out under the guidance of not Manson, but somebody allegedly in love with Beausoleil, Linda Kasabian. Among the narrative's weak points was the inability of Atkins to explain why she was maintaining that she had written Political Piggy at the Hinman house in the first place. Midway through the penalty phase, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork. He told the press, quote, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head, unquote. In what the prosecution regarded as belated recognition on their part that the imitation of Manson only proved his domination. The female defendants refrained from shaving their heads, 
until the jurors retired to waive the state's request for the death penalty. The efforts to exonerate Manson via the copycat scenario failed. On March 29, 1971, the jury returned verdicts of death against all four defendants on all counts. On April 19, 1971, Judge Older sentenced the four to death. recommending the death penalty were returned, news came that a badly decomposed body of Ronald Hughes had been found wedged between two boulders in Ventura County. It was rumored, although never proven, that Hughes was murdered by the family, possibly because he had stood up to Manson and refused to allow Van Houten to take the stand and absolve Manson of the crimes. Though he might have perished in flooding, family member Sandra Good stated that Hughes was, quote, the first of the retaliation murders, unquote. Do you uh, think that you might write a book, chronicle your experience here on the corner? We, we've, um, we have a book already. Do you? Oh, yeah, it's Charlie's writings, our writings from when we all got together. But um, people have created an image of us all, and uh, the book kind of goes is contrary to that image, and so they want to perpetuate the lie they've created about us. So really, nobody really wants the book. Oh, I think you'll find somebody that wants it. A lot of people. Thank you so much, girl. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Watson returned to McKinley, Texas, after the Tate-LaBianca murders. He was arrested in Texas on November 30, 1969, after local police were notified by the California investigators that his fingerprints were found to match the print found on the front door of the Tate home. Watson fought extradition to California long enough that he was not included among the three defendants tried with Manson. His trial commenced in August of 1971. By October, he too had been found guilty on seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. Unlike the others, Watson presented a psychiatric defense. Prosecutor Vincent Bogolsi made short work of Watson's insanity claims. Like his co-conspirators, Watson was sentenced to death. In February of 1972, the death sentences of all five parties were automatically reduced to life in prison by the People v. Anderson, in which the California Supreme Court abolished the death penalty in that state. After his return to prison, Manson's rhetoric and hippie speeches held little sway. Though he found temporary acceptance from the Aryan Brotherhood, his role was submissive to a sexually aggressive member of the group at San Quentin. Before the conclusion of Manson's Tate-LaBianca trial, a reporter from the Los Angeles Times tracked down Manson's mother, remarried and living in the Pacific Northwest. The former Kathleen Maddox claimed that in childhood, her son had suffered no neglect. He had even been, quote, pampered by all the women who surrounded him, unquote. On November 8, 1972, the body of 26-year-old Vietnam Marine combat veteran James L.T. Willett was found by a hiker near Gunnerville, California. 
Months earlier, he had been forced to dig his own grave and then was shot and poorly buried. His body was found with one hand protruding from the grave and the head and other hand missing, most likely because of scavenging animals. His station wagon was found outside a house in Stockton where several Manson family members were living, including Priscilla Cooper, Lynette Squeaky Fromm, and Nancy Pittman. Police forced their way into the house and arrested several of the people there, along with Fromm, who had called the house after they had arrived. The body of James Willett's 19-year-old wife, Lauren Rennie Chevelle Olmstead Willett, was found buried in the basement. She had been killed very recently by a gunshot to the head in what the family members initially claimed was an accident. It was later suggested that she was killed out of fear that she would reveal who killed her husband, as the discovery of the body had become prominent news. The Willett's infant daughter was found alive in the house. Michael Monfort pleaded guilty to murdering Renee Willett and Priscilla Cooper, James Craig, and Nancy Pittman pleaded guilty as accessories after the fact. Monfort and William Groucher later pleaded guilty to the murders of James Willett and James Craig pleaded guilty as an accessory after the fact. The group had been living in the house with the Willets while committing various robberies. Shortly after killing Willett, Monfort had used Willett's identification papers to pose as Willett after being arrested for armed robbery of a liquor store. News reports suggested that James Willett was not involved in the robberies and wanted to move away, but was killed out of fear that he would talk to police. After leaving the Marines following two tours in Vietnam, Willett had been an ESL teacher for immigrant children. In a 1971 trial that took place after his Tate-LaBianca convictions, Manson was found guilty of the murders of Gary Hinman and Donald Shorty Shea, and was given a life sentence. Shea was a Spahn Ranch stuntman and a horse wrangler who had been killed approximately 10 days after an August 16, 1969 sheriff's raid on the ranch. Manson, who suspected that Shea helped set up the raid, had apparently believed Shea was trying to get the Spahns to run the family off the ranch. Manson may have considered it a sin that the white Shea had married a black woman, and there was a possibility that Shea knew about the Tate-LaBianca killings. In separate trials, family members Bruce Davis and Steve Clem Grogan were also found guilty of Shea's murder. In 1977, authorities learned the precise location of the remains of Shorty Shea, and contrary to family claims that Shea had been dismembered and buried in several places. Contacting the prosecutor in the case, Steve Grogan told him Shea's corpse had been buried in one piece. He drew a map that pinpointed the location of the body, which was recovered. Of those convicted of the Manson-ordered murders, Grogan would become, in 1985, the first and only one to be paroled. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com.
or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetrucker slash. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.